Thanks for joining the Hague Mennonite Church podcast. We are a small and friendly congregation in Hague, Saskatchewan. Here you will find our weekly messages and we hope you will be encouraged and blessed. Let's get it started. There it is. The course is set in the biggest type font I could come up with. We are getting into Acts. Admittedly, this is actually a little bit strange um, because Acts is the second part of a two-part project. And the thing is, part one of this two-part project is not Matthew. Acts is the sequel to another book. Acts is the sequel to Luke. And here's how this all works, just to catch everybody up. The writer of both the Gospel of Luke and the Acts of the Apostles was a man named Luke. We kind of afterward named the books by who we think wrote them, or sometimes who they were written to. Luke, we find out, was a physician, and he was probably, possibly a Gentile follower of Jesus, but we actually don't know that for sure. Luke is somebody who accompanied Paul on some of his missionary journeys. Over these past few weeks, we've touched on a number of Paul's sidekicks, and and even last week, Henry really put an emphasis on Paul's relationship with these these helpers, these sidekicks in his mission. And and Luke was one of these guys. In the 50s or 60s, after the church has had 20, 25 years to grow and, and to thrive, Luke decided to take on a project. He describes this project actually in the Gospel of Luke. So let's just look at that. Luke chapter 1, verse 1. Luke's work is really cool because he actually has an inscription. He says what, he, what this is all about. He says, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word, who were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word had delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, O most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty regarding the things you have been taught. So that's a little bit wordy. Translations always sound a little wooden. But what this is, is it's a really elegant and formal way for Luke to say that he wrote the gospel of Luke in order to set the record straight on Christianity. The man he wrote this gospel for, Theophilus, Theophilus, he had heard some things about Christianity, Luke says, but Luke wants to give him the full story. He wants to set the record straight. And as Luke says, he can draw from two different places. He can draw first from the testimony of the eyewitnesses of the gospel, the apostles. And we've talked about this before, even during the Christmas sermons. How does Luke know what happened with Mary to such detail? How does he know what Mary said? He possibly went and interviewed her. That may be how he has so many of these details. But he can also draw from his own experience because he served with Paul for years. And actually, at one point in the book of Acts, he switches to the first person. He writes himself into the story. He becomes a part of the story. Luke is an investigator. He is setting out to write the official history of 60 years, the first 60 years of the church. The Gospel of Luke is part one of his history project, and it covers about 30 years. 
The book of Acts is part two of his history project, and it covers the next 30 years. That's why, long explanation, it's a little bit strange for us to go from Matthew to Acts, because Acts already has its own prequel. But in the end, I don't think it's that big of a problem, because you see, Matthew and Luke have a lot in common. If you've ever read through the New Testament in order, you feel like you're reading the same thing over and over. And that is because the number one thing that Matthew and Luke have in common is Mark. Both used Mark's gospel as their basic starting source. They took Mark's gospel and then they added additional stories from other sources and different details and they reorganized some of the information according to their purposes. I read somewhere that scholars say between Matthew and Luke, you could piece back together 97% of Mark by lifting pieces here and there. So Mark is scattered between the books. More than that, Matthew, the stories in Matthew, 74% of them also appear in Luke. So you'll read 74% of the same stories when you read both Gospels. Now, these two men, they write different details, and they're making different arguments. They have their own focuses, but the content is three-quarters the same between the two books. So, I think it all works. I think it works to jump into Acts after, Luke, after Matthew, and I don't think it's going to feel weird. Some of the language is a little different, but it'll feel like home. What I love about the book of Acts is that it tells us what happens next. I mean, we've got some questions. What happens after the resurrection? Where does Jesus go and why? What in the world do the disciples do? And just to sort of drive that point home, let's look at where we left off. This is Matthew 28, last paragraph. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. That's the last time we were in Matthew. That's the end of Matthew. That's where the story ends. And so I ask you, what, what's missing here? What don't we see that we would expect? The ascension. the ascension. We always talk about Jesus ascending to heaven. It does not appear in Matthew. And I feel a little bit bad because over the past few months, I've talked a few times about after Jesus ascended, after Jesus ascended. And isn't it interesting that if all you had to go on was Matthew, you would have no idea what I'm talking about. You have no idea what Jesus did or where he went after he gave the disciples these instructions. And the reason I feel a little bad about that is because not everyone in our church grew up with the Bible. You may not be familiar at all with the ascension, and you may have no idea how we've gone from the resurrection of Jesus to all of us gathering here on the Sunday morning to sit in a big pointy building. How does this happen? <laughs> because this is the last thing we read, right? We need to continue the story. So I, I think Acts is crucial 
to us understanding our faith. And I think there's more reasons why it's so important. But let's, let's start with the book itself. Acts 1, 1 and 2. There's another inscription at the beginning of the book, just like at the beginning of Luke. Same, written to the same guy. Luke wrote, In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. The first book being Luke. Until that day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. So just as he says, part one, the book of Luke, is all about what Jesus did and taught. The purpose of the gospel of Luke is to teach you everything Luke can about who Jesus is and what he was all about. And Luke even gives us a hint about what part two is going to be about, right? This is going to be about Jesus working through the Holy Spirit in the lives of his apostles. So there's a pretty obvious question. Who is this Theophilus? Who is this guy that Luke is writing all this stuff for? Short answer is we don't know. But there are actually a few clues about who he could be. In the Gospel of Luke, if you remember, Luke calls Theophilus most excellent, which is kind of a formal way of identifying Theophilus. He's a big shot. He's of a superior rank to Luke. Theophilus is probably a Roman. He's definitely educated because he can sit there and read Luke's letters. And Luke says that Theophilus is somebody who knows a few things about Christianity. But Luke has got to explain everything to him carefully. So Theophilus doesn't have a full understanding of what Christianity is. That's why Luke writes the books. At this time in the 50s and 60s, Roman suspicion of the Jesus movement of the Christians in Judaism, it was really starting to grow. The Romans were growing more and more suspicious. Roman officials would very often see Christians as a political threat. And I personally believe that part of what Luke is doing by writing these two books is explaining to an official that Christianity is not a political revolutionary movement. One of Luke's major themes through both works is that Jesus was innocent of any crimes against the Roman Empire, and so are the apostles. They're innocent of any crimes they're accused of in the book of Acts, and so is the apostle Paul especially. So if Theophilus were the kind of guy who were trying to assess, is Christianity a threat? Do I have to be worried about this? Luke's emphasis on the fact that, hey, we're not a political threat at all. You Romans keep doing your thing. It actually makes a lot of sense. And as he says, the scope of this gospel is until the, the scope of the gospel of Luke is until the day he was taken up. And so from here on, we are focused on the Holy Spirit and the apostles. When I was preparing for this, a lot of the scholars I read make the case that our traditional name for this book may be a little bit inaccurate. Like when we're saying the full name, what do we always say? We call it the Acts of the Apostles. I think I have the slide, yeah. That's the traditional name of the book. There, there, there was never a title written on Luke's letters. But I actually, I've been convinced that what's coming is probably better called the Acts of the Holy Spirit. Because what it is, is it's a continuation of Jesus' ministry, but it's the Holy Spirit which continues 
uh, to power Jesus' work in the world until this day. It, it is less about what the apostles do than what the Holy Spirit equips the apostles to do. And so I think this is the Holy Spirit's gospel in a way. And, and I'm, I couldn't be more excited to get into it for that reason. Verse 3. Luke is still giving the background to, to Theophilus. He presented himself, Jesus presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. It's really cool to think about. Between the crucifixion and resurrection and Jesus' ascension, he spent 40 days with his apostles. He appeared many times to them. He even ate with them. Something which has confused people to this day. But yeah, he, he ate with them. Jesus was totally, he was fully alive in the flesh. But we also see that he was more than alive. He was glorified. And he spent 40 days with his disciples like that. Coming and going, appearing and disappearing, showing up for a fish fry. That, that was the lifestyle. In fact, Paul writes to the Corinthians that during this time... Jesus appeared to more than 500 witnesses. And he was one of them. Paul says, I was one of them. I was one of the people that Jesus appeared to. Hundreds of people during this time had seen the risen Jesus. And so there was no doubt. And that is why these followers of Jesus were willing to go to the corners of the empire and beyond the borders of the empire to suffer and die for their faith. There is no other explanation for why history unfolded the way it did. Because the apostles gained nothing from this, except everything. They weren't exploiting anyone. What they were, is they were convinced that Jesus had broken all the rules. He was raised to life. And if Jesus was raised to life, everything was different. And so all of these men wrote these documents as witnesses who were totally and utterly convinced. What did Jesus do for 40 days? He did the same thing he had been doing for the three years prior. He taught the disciples about the kingdom. The kingdom. You know, Jesus' birth, his death, his resurrection, they mark heaven's invasion of the earth. When Jesus came, his messianic kingdom from heaven invaded the earth. And when he comes again, the earth will finally and totally be overwhelmed. But until he does return to overwhelm the earth with heaven, his kingdom is marked by every single person who acknowledges that Jesus is king. Wherever there is a Christian, there is an everlasting kingdom. We are an invading army. We are tearing down spiritual walls and strongholds with every smallest sincere prayer and every smallest act of faith and obedience to our king. Luke continues. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So Jesus tells them, don't leave Jerusalem, you've got to sit and wait. 
They were going to wait for the Father to keep his promise. And one of those apostles, John, actually wrote in his gospel when they heard this promise. They heard it during the Last Supper, during the Passover Seder with Jesus. And so listen to this. This is from John 14. This is what he remembers. Jesus said, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. This is what Jesus told them. Love and obey him. Love and obey Jesus. And the Father promises to give you a helper. That helper is called the Spirit of Truth. And that Spirit is absolutely holy and heavenly. And it's not at all from the world. The world does not even recognize him. The world doesn't know him. But you do. He is with you. And he will always be with you. That's the promise. What a promise. That process of this Spirit of God coming to dwell in them, Jesus calls a baptism. And do you notice he refers to John's baptism in water, right? And I think I know why. I mean, look at what John the Baptist himself had to say. Matthew 3, 11. John said, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. So we can kind of take a step back and we can kind of piece together this promise by everything the scriptures are referring to here. Repent and confess your sins. Be baptized. Love Jesus and obey him. And God will send his own Holy Spirit to dwell in you. And that spirit will empower you to live a heavenly life on earth. That's the promise that the disciples are supposed to wait for. And they have no idea what this all means quite yet. But now we're actually getting back to the story proper. Uh, Luke isn't catching us up anymore and we're going to get everything in real time. The story does not start well for the disciples. Acts uh, 1-6. So when... (coughs) Voice crack, that's not good. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? So Jesus' 40 days with his disciples have come to an end. This is actually their last time together. And look at this question. Do you kind of catch what's happening here? Anybody want to volunteer? What is wrong with this question? They didn't learn a thing. Shelby is exactly right. Think about that for a second. They have had three years with Jesus, give or take, every day. They've been witnesses to his resurrection. They have just taken a 40-day intensive course on the kingdom of heaven. And the first thing that comes out of their mouths tells us that they still don't get it. Because this is what they're asking. They're asking Jesus, So Jesus, is this when you're finally going to kick the Romans out of Israel? Is this when that happens? 
You remember all of those discussions we went over in Matthew when the apostles or somebody's mother (laughs) was discussing who's going to be most important in your kingdom? Do you remember when thousands of men met Jesus in the wilderness and they wanted to make him a warlord to go and fight the Romans? After everything, the disciples still think that Jesus is going to go to war with Rome and that they are about to become big shots in the new kingdom of Israel. And here's the big one, right? Remember that Jesus was killed under the false accusation that he was a threat to the Roman government. It was a lie. But the disciples still want the lie. They want their political victory. So how in the world do you think Jesus answers this question? You know, Luke doesn't tell us if Jesus facepalmed or not. We don't get a lot of body language description, right? But really interestingly, Jesus doesn't say no. Acts 1-7. He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. Jesus doesn't say no to them. He says, that's none of your business. God has set the start and the end date of the Roman Empire. That is up to the Father. God holds the future of the Jewish people in his hand. That is up to the Father. Forget about it and let God's will be done. They're not supposed to know God's plans. But, there's a but, God does have some plans that they're supposed to know about. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and in all Judea, and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. It's not about that. It is not about the kingdom of Israel. It's not about politics and power, and it's not about the nation. It is about the Holy Spirit, and it is about the gospel. This is not about political power. This is about spiritual power. The disciples at this moment, they are focused on the wrong kingdom. They want their ethnic kingdom restored. But Jesus is sending them now to establish a totally different kind of kingdom. Jesus is sending them to establish heaven on earth. And they will do this by the power of the Holy Spirit because it is totally obvious to everyone right now that they are totally powerless to do this themselves. They don't even understand what they're supposed to be doing. But they will receive the Holy Spirit and they will become his witnesses And they will proclaim the gospel from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria to the very ends of the earth. I love this. This is the story of the entire Bible. Israel's destiny was always to be God's witnesses to the whole world. Israel was formed to be a priestly nation so that they could be the priests of the entire earth. Israel was always meant to teach all humanity to worship their God, Yahweh. And beautifully, right now, what we have is what will be 12 Jewish men who are representing the 12 tribes of Israel who are going to fulfill Israel's destiny and start the process of reaching every single nation on earth. 
Israel's high calling is fulfilled in 12 very ordinary Jewish men who have one extraordinary king. And Jesus even gives us the roadmap for the gospel. He gives us the plan. It's really, really cool. So Jesus says, if you look, uh, Jerusalem is right here. Bethlehem is right outside. There's Emmaus. So you talk about the Emmaus Road. It's right outside of Jerusalem. And Jesus said that, says that the gospel is going to go from, from Jerusalem, everyone in the city, to Judea and Samaria, which are these two provinces, to the entire world. This is actually the structure of the book of Acts. Chapters 1 to 7 of the book of Acts are all about the newborn church, which is located exclusively in Jerusalem. Then chapters 8 to 11, around verse 18, are about the church moving from Jerusalem into Judea and Samaria. It's like saying, you're going to start in Saskatoon and you're going to reach all of Saskatchewan. They move into the province, they spread, and they actually have to flee the city. And it's God's plan. And then, from 1119 to the end of the book, it's all about the church spreading across the Roman Empire. And the book finally ends, it culminates with the gospel being preached by Paul on the streets of Rome, totally boldly and totally freely. The heart of the empire, the seat of power. So when Jesus says all of this, he means it. The story is going to fold exact, unfold exactly as he says. Scripture is so perfect that we can trace church history unfolding exactly according to Jesus' instructions. And Luke even gives us the timeline. Verse 9. And when he had said these things and they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And that's it. That is the last thing he says to these disciples face to face. The last thing he tells them is that they would be empowered and they would be sent out to the entire world. The last thing he tells them is that you've got to think bigger than Israel. I have way more in store for you. They would build a kingdom greater than any earthly kingdom. And this is the ascension. This is it in one sentence. Our imagination of Jesus' ascension is probably all affected by the movies we've seen, right? You've got to have tons of special effects when it happens because, you know. But notice how simple it is. Jesus is lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And that's it. This is interesting. You know, we've seen this cloud before. Remember this. Remember when Jesus brought Peter, James, and John to the top of the mountain... And then suddenly Jesus was changed and he began to shine and his heavenly glory was revealed to them. We call it the transfiguration. We're going to hop back to Matthew. This is after Peter asks his dumb question. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them and a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Who arrives on the scene? It is God the Father himself. And the holy presence of God is represented by a cloud. 
And so three of the disciples who are watching Jesus ascend have seen the cloud before. And I just love that description. They say it's a bright cloud. It almost sounds like a contradiction. Can you imagine a cloud which produces light? Jesus told the high priest when the high priest was interrogating him, you're going to see me coming out of the clouds of heaven. And when Jesus says the words clouds of heaven, he is not, not talking about a fluffy white place where we fly around with stupid little wings and play harps. The clouds of heaven are the bold and the bright and the overwhelming presence of Yahweh God. And maybe for a few people right now, your Torah senses are kind of tingling, right? I don't know if they are for you, Mike. He's nodding. These connections are so beautiful because if we look way back, we go 1,400 years before Jesus. Moses has completed building the tabernacle. And this is where God promised he would dwell amongst Israel as part of the nation, you know, as leading the nation. Exodus 40. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. This is Yahweh's glory. God's presence to our human eyes looks like a cloud, but this is no ordinary cloud because it is so overwhelming that Moses cannot even approach it. And it happens again. Look what happens when 400 years later, Israel brings the Ark of the Covenant into the new temple in Jerusalem. 1 Kings 8. And when the priests came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord, filled the temple so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. God's glory, his presence, fills Solomon's temple, and it's so overwhelming that the priests have to take off because they can't even do their priest stuff anymore. God's holy presence is just so overwhelming to them. It's overwhelming. I've used that word so many times. It's bright. It is powerful. It filled the tabernacle, it filled the temple, and now it is that presence of God the Father which surrounds Jesus and lifts him up so that he cannot even be seen anymore. Can you imagine what that would have looked like? Now Jesus takes his place just as he promised. How many times was he talking about that prophecy in Daniel? He's at the right hand of the Father in the throne room of heaven. He is presented to the Father and he is given dominion over all things, more than even Daniel promised, heaven and earth. He's our king. I was visiting with a friend of mine, this was a few years ago, uh, probably about 10 years ago now, um, she was somebody who I knew as a passionate believer. She was always such an inspiration to me. And uh, she told me about how she was saved. She, she was really badly addicted to hard drugs. And it got to the point where she needed to be put into rehab. And she was sitting there in rehab. She was sitting outside one day on a bench at the rehab center. And a man came up to her. She had no idea who he was. And asked if she needed to pray the sinner's prayer. And she had never had any 
inclination toward Christianity before, but her spirit was ready. She can't explain it. And so she prayed the sinner's prayer with this man. She didn't see him ever again. And she repented. She asked for Jesus to forgive her. And she says that in that moment when she asked for Jesus' for Jesus's forgiveness, she looked up in the sky and saw a great bright cloud, and she saw the form of Jesus calling to her, motioning to her to come. And she has been committed to him ever since. Now, I, I can't imagine. It gives me chills, you know? One day we're all going to see it. You know, nobody's going to miss it when he comes back. But in this moment, this, the disciples that are standing there, their jaws are on the floor. They're so struck and overwhelmed. This is great. It's almost comedy. They don't notice that there's new people standing next to them. They're just this, right? Uh, verse 10. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes. I just love that. Because they suddenly look around and they realize there's two strangers standing next to them. So, who or what do you think these two guys are? Angels. It's obvious to all of us, right? How do we know that they're angels? They're in white robes. That's, that's actually a perfect answer. <laughs> I'm just going to point this out. <laughs> yeah, wigs and a harp, right? Who said that? I don't know. I can't see because of masks. <laughs> Angels are consistently described as being white and that, not white skin necessarily, okay? Let me, let me backtrack. White robed <laughs> and dazzling and frightening. Usually, we don't get that here. Usually, people are scared when an angel turns up. They are never described as having wings. The whole wings thing is because we confuse them with the heavenly beasts from the prophet's visions, the ones around God's throne. They're different. Two guys in white robes. There's no halos. There's no wings. But there's definitely something about them which makes them startling, right? And I love what they have to say next. Verse 11. They said, men of Galilee, why do you stand there looking into heaven? This Jesus who is taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Essentially what they're saying to the disciples is, what are you guys staring at? Are you going to just stand there and wait for him to come back? Jesus ascended into heaven in the holy presence of God and they say, he will one day descend from heaven in the same glory. Don't waste time waiting. Don't stand around and cramp your necks watching the heavens. Because the last thing Jesus said to them is that they have a job to do. And that is what the rest of the book of Acts is all about. And we'll get to that in the future. If you can't tell, I'm really excited to get into this story. I think this is a great next step for us. And I even love how Luke specifically has the disciples start off this book with one more bad, misguided question. As if these guys can't catch a break. They're going to catch a break right away, so we'll stop beating up on them so much. Because what we're going to see is, when the Father keeps his promise and when the Father sends the Holy Spirit, things are going to totally change. 
The disciples are going to be bold and they are going to be impossibly wise. They are going to be committed and passionate for the kingdom of God. And isn't it interesting that three years of teaching from no less than the Son of God himself wasn't enough for them to understand what this was all about. But one encounter with the Holy Spirit is enough. We're going to get to that. But although their last question here, it's a bad one, I think we have a lot to learn from this question. Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Will you at this time grant Israel her freedom? Will you at this time finally crush her enemies? Will you at this time give us the power we want? Lord, will you at this time give us political favor? You know, the reason this is such a bad question isn't because this is necessarily a bad thing to desire. I mean, why should the disciples want their people, want their families to have to live their lives under the boot of the Romans? That shouldn't be something they want. The reason this is such a bad question is because compared to what God has planned, this pales. It's totally worthless. It's petty. If all the disciples want, after everything that's happened, is a political victory, then they're going to miss out on the infinitely greater victory of heaven. I just looked at this and I thought, you know, what a lesson for the times. Let me just throw the question out there. Have you seen any signs out there that the church still wants political favor? Show of hands. Have you ever seen that maybe on the news or anything like that? Have you ever seen any signs that we still want to be in charge so that we can do away with our enemies, so that we can get it our way? When we fall into this way of thinking, what happens is we feel like we're always one good election away from getting prayer back into schools. We're always one politician away from finally outlawing abortion. We're always one political party away from good Christian morals from the government ethics without the gospel, rules without a shred of transformation. All along, Jesus has taught us that what ails us is not that we have the wrong set of rules or that we have the wrong set of leaders. What ails us is our heart. And unless our heart is healed, none of it does any good. You want to end abortion, preach the gospel. You want prayer back in schools, teach your children to have a relationship with Jesus so that they can pray at all times no matter what's going on around them. They don't have to be forced to pray the Lord's Prayer. They can know the Lord for themselves. If we as Jesus' church, if we live and we breathe and we talk politics and not gospel then we've fallen into exactly the trap that is behind this bad question. We've become so distracted by trying to win back the earthly kingdom of Canada that we don't bother to take an inch for the kingdom of heaven. I need, I need to calm down. I'll take a step back. <laughs> you know, I don't yeah, breathe. Yeah. At least I don't have a mask on. It's a little easier. I don't think the political issue is the biggest issue for Hagman and I church right now. I'm not trying to, you know, finger wag everybody. That's not what I'm up to. 
What I'm pointing out is that we are living in this current supercharged pandemic climate where more and more, if you're not against someone, people think there's something wrong with you. The temptation we're now facing is the belief that our enemies are always the ones in power, and once we get rid of them, everything is going to be better. And that belief is as dangerous to us as it was for the disciples, because God's word is totally clear. Ephesians 6, put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Our enemies are not flesh and blood. They never have been. Our enemies are not and never have been political authorities. Our enemies have always been evil, spiritual authorities. And the fact is that as long as the church is more concerned about defeating liberals and getting our way, the one thing that we're not doing is reaching people for the gospel. The liberals are the people we need to reach with the gospel because they need it. They're not our enemies. They're flesh and blood like the rest of us. They're redeemed by the same gospel. If people continue to believe that Jesus needed to make war on Rome to liberate Israel, Peter would not have been baptizing a Roman centurion only a short time later. Think of that. What Peter is asking for right here is for guys like, like Cornelius to be killed by Jesus' own hand. And a short time later, Jesus is going to save Cornelius and his entire household. God has seen... 100 nations greater than Canada come and go like a breath. And he says to us, it is not for us to know times or seasons that the Father fixed by his own authority. But what he has revealed to us to do, to live for, is so much greater and so much more valuable. So Christians, we are his witnesses We are the evidence, we are the living evidence of the risen Jesus. We are empowered and emboldened for his work by the Holy Spirit. Nothing can stop us because we don't need freedom of association. We don't need freedom of speech. We don't need packed churches. We don't need prayers in schools. We don't need vaguely biblical laws for us to be the kingdom of God. The kingdom is wherever and whenever one of us worships the king. Wherever a human being represents, repents of his or her own sins and accepts Jesus' kingship, the kingdom is right there, fully alive in full force. And it's always winning. It never loses. And scripture never mandates that we meet from 10.30 to 12 o'clock on Sunday mornings. It is not a command of Jesus. This is totally 100% expendable. We don't need any of this to be the kingdom. Scripture does mandate that we love each other. Scripture mandates that we preach the gospel. And Scripture mandates that we obey the king. And nobody can stop us from doing those things. So, don't be fooled into thinking that these political squabbles are going to do Jesus any favors. Everybody is going to try to convince you that you've got to choose a side and you've got to fight in order to be faithful. But Jesus' word speaks for itself. 
Receive power through the Holy Spirit. Be his witnesses every day in all cases. Don't bother putting your trust in princes. Put your trust in the King of Kings. Our King of Kings, eternal, glorious, shrouded in the very Shekinah glory of the Almighty God. And he is coming again in wrath and judgment and righteousness and goodness when heaven's invasion of earth will be complete and this thing that we are doing right here will overwhelm the entire world. That is our King. Amen. Yeah, what Paul had to say in Ephesians? Yeah, okay. Yes. Yeah, I'm going to reread that. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. That's from Ephesians 6. Let's pray. Holy One, you are so good. Even today, your cloud overwhelms us. God, let your presence overwhelm your church. I pray for your cloud, your presence to be so heavy among us that we can even barely stand to be in the room just like Moses, just like the priests who had to flee the temple. Always, God, what our desire first in our heart ought to be is more of you, not more of the world. So, Father, we pray humbly for a vision for the kingdom before all things, and we repent that we've been attracted by this temptation and we have neglected your kingdom for the sake of the kingdoms of the world. And God, we pray that that would be no more. That we would step out in the boldness that we were always born to have and we would no longer have a spirit of fear. Let us no longer be afraid. Let us be free, always in your name, in your presence. And one day, Lord, we will see your glory face to face and boy, this is all going to make sense. And for that, we give you glory and we give you honor. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks so much for listening to the Hague Mennonite Church Podcast. For more information about us, you can go to our website hagemennonitechurch.ca. Until the next time.